Well, open your Bibles at Mark 10, and we're going to look at this story. And you'll have noticed already from our reading of the story that this is the account of a miracle. Immediately we say those words, of course, we're speaking counterculturally, we're flowing against the tide of our society. Our society doesn't like miracles. Uh, they, we can say almost that our society is allergic to the idea of the miracle because the miracle presupposes the supernatural. That is, it presupposes that there is a power, perhaps even a personality, bigger than we are. We cannot comprehend what we cannot comprehend or manipulate, something that is out with our control. And it's interesting to watch some of the movies that have been made over the last few years telling the Bible story. Of course, I haven't watched them because Presbyterians don't engage in that kind of thing, but I have observed that the supernatural elements have been removed from those movies and either edited out or explained away. I remember as a little boy uh, living in Glasgow, well, I wasn't living in Glasgow, going to my grandmother's house in Glasgow and discovering some of my missionary aunt's books uh, and reading them. And uh, very popular in Scotland at that time was a man called William Barclay. He was professor at Glasgow University, and he wrote widely. He was a professor of divinity, strangely enough, and he, he wrote widely on the Gospels of Jesus. And so the miracles of Jesus, the miracle, for example, of the feeding of the 5,000 was that people had brought their packed lunches, they had them hidden in their long garments and were hiding them from other people in case they had to share. And the real miracle was that Jesus got them to produce what they were hiding and to share it with one another. When Jesus walked on the water, there were, in fact, underneath some rocks just below the surface, and he walked from one rock to the other out into the sea. Everything was explained away. Everything explained away. No room for the supernatural. No room for miracles. Right at the very heart of the Church of Scotland teaching body of divinity in Glasgow. So, modern man, aside from the church, is almost paranoid in his desire to find naturalistic reasons for every event naturalistic results or, 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 or solutions to every problem. Supernaturalism is ruled out of court almost without a hearing. And like William Barclay, many Christians have been terrorized by the anti-supernatural mafia, the, the mass media of communications. If this was Britain, I'd say the BBC, but I won't say that here. But there are other means of communicate, miscommunication going around that are terrorizing good people into rejecting things they know to be true in their hearts but are afraid to say in public. And so the church has made concessions to that mentality. This has often been done, of course, with the best of motives. I mean, I've watched TV shows where a Christian person who is a real believer because I've known them as real believers, in, in, in a debate or discussion on television, because it's on television and because of the, the in, in Britain particularly, 
where we only have three or four channels, uh, if you're on one or other of those, the, the vast majority of the, co- the population are watching you. And I've seen Christian people, good people, for the best of motives, to gain a hearing for the gospel, to retain a seat at the table, as it were, to be asked again. It's one thing to be asked once. You always want to be asked again to appear on television. They have often surrendered, stepped back from the issue of the supernatural. And yet the Bible insists that it is itself a supernatural word and that the work of God is a supernatural work of God. And here in this story, it's a story of the healing of a blind man. It's done in public, very public. It's done at the main gate of the city of Jericho, which was a very large city for those days, cosmopolitan city in many ways, a kind of throughfare for uh, movement of goods and services uh, and populations at that time. And it is in this context that this man is healed by Jesus. Now, there are a couple of principles I want you to keep in mind before we dive into the story about the miracles of Jesus. The first is that the miracles of Jesus were presented at one level as evidences for his divine nature, or at least for his Holy Spirit-filled ability to do the miracles. In fact, if we were to press the matter a bit more closely as we read the Gospels, these miracles demonstrate that he is the Lord of life. He is life in himself, and he gives life to people. They're the evidence that he has come from God. He has come from God, and he has come to us. Nothing else about Jesus would have made that impression. The man Jesus walked in, you would have a passing glance at him, but you would not identify him as a divine creature, a divine, sorry, a divine being. You would, you would dismiss him just as another human being sitting in the room. If he came to sit beside you in the pew, you'd move over to let him sit down, but you wouldn't look twice. What distinguished Jesus are the miracles that he performed, these signs and wonders that he did, and they pointed to him that he had come from God, they attested his person, and they verified his claims to be the Lord of life. On the other hand, these miracles, these powerful acts of Jesus, can be regarded without minimizing the reality of the miracle itself, can be regarded as spiritual illustrations. I I hate to use the word illustrations. It seems so numb and and ill-defined. But we see in these physical miracles pointers to spiritual realities that lie behind them. It's a very important thing to say. In fact, John in John's gospel prefers not to use the word miracle. He uses the word semion, a sign. They are symbols in many ways. They're realities. They really happen. But they point to truths that are deeper, greater, higher than you can see with your physical eyes. 
And this is one miracle that helps us, I think, to unpack that, those two points that I've just made. And the, the story itself falls into three parts. First of all, consider the man's condition without Jesus. What was his condition without Jesus? I've already tried to establish there's a connection between the physical and the spiritual. And this is most true when we probe into ultimate issues. There is, says the Bible, ultimately, though not specifically, a link between the physical and the spiritual. Uh, that physical and mental disability is connected to the spiritual problem of sin. Now, I need immediately to say, having said that, that I'm not saying that someone's physical ailments or mental condition are the direct result of one particular sin in your life. I'm not saying that. Clear that thought away. Sometimes the devil uses that thought to make you miserable. And when he does that, you must chase him away, and you must say, get behind me, Satan. God won't let me think in those ways. But having said that, I would say that sin is the root of every human malady there is. Sin brings death into the world, and death is what is really working in you when you're sick. When you're ill, one of these days, one of those sicknesses and illnesses is going to kill you. Sorry to bring you good news at the end of a good Sunday. It's the entrance of sin into the world that has infected the whole stream of humanity with countless woes and sorrow. And that's why our Lord demonstrated His ability to deal with the root problem of sin by demonstrating His power over the effects of sin, which were the disabilities and the demon possession and the sicknesses of men and women in his time. And in this particular miracle, we must look at this man's condition. What is his condition? He is blind. That's why we call him blind Bartimaeus. It's shame. shame. We're going to meet him in heaven. We're going to say, well, you're blind Bartimaeus, but he can see me. Okay, so I'm not going to call him blind Bartimaeus in heaven. And we're, the story, we're to see this story in the context as being quite deliberate. I mean, it happened in this order, but it's God's overruling that it happened in this order. For this is the context. Back in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he asked them, what do you want me to do to you or for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus responds to them and says, You do not know what you are asking for. You have not a clue what you're asking for. These two guys were only interested in glory. They saw Jesus as the Messiah figure. And Jesus confronts them with their spiritual blindness, their lack of understanding, their focus on exterior things, 
I mean, Jesus is going to tell Pilate himself, my kingdom is not of this world, but these boys at this point think it is and want to be in on the show once it takes place. Now, if you read through the Bible, you'll find that this is what the Bible says everywhere when, when it's dealing with man and in sin and about mankind outside of Christ. Why do people live for pleasure? Pleasure that's temporary and vain. Why, why do people, why do you perhaps, live an aimless life? Where have I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Why is it that people refuse to consider eternity? Well, Ephesians chapter 3 says it's because they're darkened in their understanding. They're darkened in their understanding. Paul illustrates this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he's comparing and contrasting the Jews who remain unconverted with Jews who have become Christians. He says that the trouble with the unconverted person, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile, is that there is a veil over their mind, and they cannot understand the things of God. The exact words that he uses about the Jews is they go to synagogue every Sunday and they hear the Word of God read to them. It's the very Word of God you and I as Christian people believe. They read that. That Word is read to them. And every time the Word is read, Paul says there is a veil over their eyes. They cannot see. It's veiling their understanding. They cannot perceive what is being said. And that is the issue with every unconverted person. You may be highly intelligent, you may have a PhD from uh, an institution like the University of Pennsylvania, and you could come to church and sit here and hear me reading the Scriptures and hear me preaching a sermon and not understand a word of it. Really not understand what it's about. You may understand the words, but not what it's really about. You may pride yourself in your knowledge. You may be able to discuss and talk about philosophies, but not know the things of God. In uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul spells it out for us. He says, if our gospel, that is the message that we preach, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Because in their case, the God of this world, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The spiritual blindness has been prompted by Satan. There's a failure of the mind. The highest faculty in man becomes blunted and blinded as a result of sin. And that's why there is no word in the Bible that is used more frequently of the person who is not in Christ than the word fool. The fool has said in their heart, 
there is no God. In Romans chapter 1, verses 20, verse 21, it says this, Although they knew God, that is by nature, everybody knows God by nature. He's put himself on display every night you walk out and you see the stars in the sky, or every time you go to a, uh, one of our great national uh, parks and you look at the beauty of nature, you are seeing God displaying himself to you. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the effect that sin has upon people. Darkness. Isaiah pictures people in the land of the Gentiles walking in darkness until the great light of the incarnation of Christ comes into the world to dispel their darkness and bring Gentiles into the light of God. In the dark, we are clutching to find a way out. We're, we're looking or, or feeling our way because we cannot see. We're trying to find reality and the things that can come within our senses. And ultimately, this is the explanation of people's refusal to accept the gospel of Jesus In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, this is how it's put. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So I want to ask you a question tonight. If you're visiting or you've come with a friend, do you believe the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it everything to you? If it isn't, then it's because your understanding is darkened, your spiritual eyes have been blinded, you may be able to sit in this meeting and read everything and see everything that you can see in this light, and yet your spiritual sight is darkened. And just as Jesus gave this blind man physical sight, so Jesus can give to you true spiritual sight and understanding. I know this because it says in the Scripture that he came to open the eyes of the blind. Not just the physically blind, but the spiritually blind. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The healing of this man was a miracle, and the conversion of a person from not knowing God to knowing God is the even greater miracle. I quoted from 2 Corinthians. Let me do so again in chapter 4, from verse 6 this time. He says this, for God, who at creation said, let light shine out of darkness. God said, let there be light, and there was light. That God, that creation God, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you don't know God, you need a miracle. If you're praying for friends 
who are not Christians, you need to persevere in prayer for them. That's the very means God will use to perform a miracle in their hearts. So what is the condition of this man without Jesus? He's blind, physically blind, just as we are all without Jesus spiritually blind. But then secondly, let's look at his confrontation with Christ, his confrontation with Christ. And this is very significant because a spiritual work was already, we see, taking place in this man before he was healed. I mean, Bartimaeus is blind physically, but he has insight even before he has eyesight. You notice that what the people said to him, they, they said to him when he said, what's all the fuss about? They said to him, it was Jesus of Nazareth that was passing by. But then look what he does. He begins to cry out and to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, he doesn't just repeat the words that, uh, of the person who told him who it was that was in their, uh, in their town and, and was passing by. He used words that were quite specific words to be spoken by a Jew about somebody else. The, this is the language that you would use if you believed someone was the Messiah. The Messiah was to come from David. He was to be the son of David. And so already this man is thinking about this. He's heard reports about Jesus. He's never met Jesus, but he's heard the reports. He's heard about the feeding of the 5,000 and the raising of the dead and the, and, and the miracles, the healings of lep leprosy and so on, all of these mighty works that Jesus did. Done. And he's, he's, he's blind, but he can use his spirit, Holy Spirit, renovating work in his mind to at least cling on to the view that this Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David and God's Messiah. And you see that he's putting Jesus onto the God side of things because he asks Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy, mercy, on me. You go to God for mercy. He asks Jesus to have mercy on him. And so we find this man given spiritual insight, and he calls in the name of Jesus that he might be saved. Now, how does, how does this miracle that happens to this man happen to you and me? There's a great passage in Romans chapter 10, which is the kind of go-to passage if you want to know what preaching is in the church. And in that passage, there's an order. The order is this, sending, preachers must be sent, sending, preaching, hearing, believing, and calling. I'll, I'll read verses 14 to 16, how everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? 
How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching to them? How are they to preach unless they are sent? Now, you take that order, and you look at the story of this incident in Jericho. God sent his son into the world, and at this particular time, to Jericho. God's son preached. The Gospels tell us he's doing that all the time and everywhere. The natures of his the miracles demonstrate uh, his, uh, his work and the power of it. Bartimaeus had heard much of Jesus, and now he hears that Jesus is passing through. In fact, Jesus is very near where he is sitting. He believed what he heard. He had confidence that Jesus was the son of David. But if, if that's as far as it went, you see, well, it would have done him no good. He had to take the next step. What was the next step? The last step. Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. He calls on the Lord. People try to stop him, of course. People try to shush him up. Don't you hate that when somebody says shush to you in a conversation? Well, they were saying shush to Bartimaeus, but he insisted. <clears throat> he called on Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, so far, so clear. <clears throat> he threw off his cloak and he came to Jesus. I think he was excited, wouldn't you be? I think he thought, what's going to happen next? What's it going to be like to see? And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? <laughs> you know, it's quite funny, isn't it? What do you want me to do for you? I would have thought it was blindingly obvious. What do you want me to do for you. It may strike us as strange for him to ask a blind man who had to beg to survive what he needed. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is offering this man a blank check. What would you like me to do for you? But it's more than that. Jesus is teaching this man to admit his need and to ask for help. Do you really want to know God? Do you really want to be able to see? And very often in our progress towards Jesus Christ, we don't hear him saying those words to us, but we find him in effect dealing with us in this way where he gets us to ask ourselves questions. Do you feel you're all right as you are? Are you happy with the way things are working out for you in your life? There are some people who seem to like being sick. I know maybe that's a judgment on them, but they quite like having something wrong with them. They have something to talk about, even if it's complain. They have a reason not to go to work and so on and so on. Jesus is asking this man, are you prepared for the changes 
that this will make to you. And he asks us, are you prepared for the changes that having spiritual sight will make to your life? The question calls into question the prayer life of the Christian believer also. When we come to God, what do we want God to do for us? What do we want Him to do for us? Do we want Him to give us fresh insight into His Word? Well, if you want that, if you ask for that, if you ask, Lord, when when we come to church, we really want to hear you speak to us. We really want you to put your thumbs on the pus point of sin in our individual lives and press. We really want you to address us. Are you sure you want that? Are you sure you want that? Because God is a way of making us uncomfortable by His Word. So we better be sure what we're asking for. Do we want the Lord to use us? Then we better be ready for Him to do just that. Lord, anywhere, anytime, any cost. I remember praying those, that prayer when I was about 19, before I went to seminary. Uh, Anywhere, anytime, any cost. That's got me here. There you go. So the question Jesus asks makes us sit up and face reality. He really is able to do things. He's wanting to do things. But do we really want him to do things? Well, that leads us then to his consecration to Jesus in verse 52. Supposing the Lord does heal you or save you or bless you, what then? Notice what Jesus does in verse 52. Jesus said to the man, go your way. Go. He cuts him loose. And he gives him options. Go, he says. He's a man who's been blind for years now. And you can see. Great. He's been sitting on that road for years. Jericho was one of the great uh, sin capitals of of the region. Uh, Will he go and see the sights? Will he go and get a job or a home? What what will he do with this? Some people think becoming a Christian is the first step to being middle class, respectable, and comfortable. But no, immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road or on the way. Luke tells us that he was doing that, praising God. But we who've been reading Mark's gospel know very, very well that there's more in that expression than meets the eye. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem, to the cross. To go with Jesus on the road is to go with him to the cross. To go with Jesus on the way is to take that route of rejection by the world as we follow him into his future. He followed Jesus along the way. You and I are called to do the same. This is 
the way of true discipleship. We want to talk about discipleship, and sometimes we want to talk about things that we've got in our little agenda that we want to talk about. What does it mean to be a disciple and to work here or to do this or whatever? To be a true disciple is to be prepared to die with Jesus. Jesus Christ is the eye-opening Lord who wants to give you and me spiritual sight and understanding. And it's not all gloom and doom, of course. There's much joy in following Jesus along the way. But I want you to be realistic. It's not all joy, though there's much joy. And in fact, the joy is is focused on things that are to come. There is more joy ahead of us than there is behind us. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit tonight we would uh, rejoice in our brother Bartimaeus and the physical miracle that he had in his life, but the spiritual miracle that led him, instead of going and looking for some comfort, now that he could see, he follows along with Jesus on the way to the cross. May we join him in the journey. Amen.